Hey everyone, Natalie here from The Pendulum's Path. If you need guidance, direction, spiritual connection, or more, then listen up. I have worked as a psychic and a medium for over three years, connecting people from all over the world with their loved ones in spirit, giving them insight and guidance into their current situations, the past healings that need to be worked on, and what it is they need to know today in order to have a better future. It would be my absolute honor if you would visit my website at www.thependulumspath.com. I also offer emailed readings for those with busy schedules too. Also, for you goblins who subscribe to the Esoteric Book Club, I have a special coupon code just for you. Enter the code STAYWEIRD to get $5 off of any order of $25 or more. Hope to see you there. Our story begins all the way back in ancient Egypt. Thousands of years before the birth of Christ, ancient Egyptians were baking breads and cakes as offerings for their deities. These cakes were crafted from fruit, nuts, honey, and most importantly, native wheat. The corns of this wheat were ground up into a fine meal, a meal that we know today as flour. It's strange to think that something that is so common in today's diet was once relegated to a corner of the world. Alongside the growth of the Egyptian empire came another Mediterranean power, Rome. Thanks to the Roman Empire, the cultivation of wheat spread all the way to the western shores of England and all the way to the east to Germania. Even today, the production of bread varies greatly from place to place. That said, they all carry the same general ingredients, the same recipes. They all have flour, liquid of some sort, and some sort of fat to hold it all together. Eventually, it was discovered that you could mix yeast and sugar together in your bread and give it a lighter, fluffier taste. Usually, this also included a leavening agent of some sort, something like baking soda. Here's where things get a little interesting. The ancient Egyptians knew about yeast because they were pretty prolific brewers. They also used honey as the food source for said yeast. They also had a fairly large industry for the production of something called natron, which is baking soda and soda ash. You know, leavening agents. The weird thing is, they never mixed it with their bread. You see, natron was used almost exclusively for the mummification process. How did we go from this random assembly of ingredients, some of which were too precious to bake with, to today's modern spiced cookies that we find around Christmas time? Cookies that we commonly know as gingerbread. We'll examine that question in tonight's book, The Secret History of Christmas Baking, Recipes and Stories from Tomb Offerings to Gingerbread Boys, by Linda Radish. I'm your host, Jason, and you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club.
Welcome back, goblins! Before we get started tonight, I need to take a moment to thank the members of the Esoteric Archive. Specifically, Grand Inquisitor Samantha, Grand Inquisitor Annie Kay, and Soul Rising Studios. Your contributions help pay server cost, purchase reading material, and helps to buy me time so I can figure out what to do with this partridge in a pear tree. I asked for coffee and instead I got this tree with a bird in it. I don't even know what a partridge is. If you too would like to help out the show by not giving me bird-based gifts, head over to patreon.com forward slash esoteric book club. But that's enough talk about fruit trees and fowl. It's time to talk about Christmas cookies. So without further ado, let's get weird. This is normally where I give you a little background on the author, but to be frank, Radish is pretty low-key. She's been a contributor to the Llewellyn Herbal Almanac since 2012, and has written several books, including The Lore of Old Elfland, The Old Magic of Christmas, which I covered in Season 1, and now... The Secret History of Christmas Baking. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that unless you're a really big Egyptophile, you probably haven't heard of the temple priest named Rekmeyer. Until I read this book, I hadn't either. We know about Rekmeyer because he had a fairly elaborately decorated tomb in Egypt at some point. About 1500 BC, he was in charge of the offerings made to the temples and this included being in charge of the baking. Not, like, directly, but more as an overseer. In fact, his tomb has illustrations of bakers making little conical cakes that were used as offerings to the gods. These cakes would be made from flour, honey, and tiger nuts. Now, despite the name, tiger nuts are not actually nuts. They are a roasted tuber of a plant in the chuffa family. For those who may not know, chuffa is sort of like grass, but it has a triangular stem. It also has nothing to do with actual tigers. Apparently it gets this name from the stripes that are found on the raw tubers. Despite the odd-sounding name, this is a plant that is still cultivated today. In fact, some of you may be able to find this in your grocery stores. And, just in case you want to make an offering to Amun-Ra, there's a recipe for these Egyptian tiger nut cakes in the book. At this point, you may be asking yourself, if this is a book about Christmas cookies, why are we talking about nut cakes that were made as offerings to Egyptian gods? So first, I want to point out that the word cookie is a fairly recent one. It comes from the Pennsylvania Dutch, and really only came about in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. In translation, the word kookje means little cake, and that will give you a clue of how we're going to look at the history of cookies. To put this in perspective, the word cookie is only a little more than 200 years old we have evidence of tiger nuts being used as early as 15,000 BC. So that means we roughly have 16,800 years between the first recorded use of the word cookie and the first archaeological evidence of the use of tiger nuts. That's a pretty long span of time to have been making little cakes. 
Now this next part's going to take a little bit of a leap, about several thousand years, honestly. So in ancient Egypt, they were using tiger nuts and flour to bake their cakes. At some point, because of the Roman legion, this type of baking made its way to Germania. The weather in this region doesn't lend itself to the growing of tiger nuts, but it is pretty good for an actual nut, the hazelnut. We find archaeological evidence for the use of hazelnuts all the way in the north in Scandinavia as early as 7000 BC. Now, it's not quite as old as the use of tiger nuts, but for the time period we're talking about, and that's the Roman occupation of the lands of Germania, they were already pretty well established in their use. The Romans were also responsible for the spread of something else, and that is wheat. For the longest time, Germania only had the production of barley and rye, which works pretty well for most breads. But if you want something light and fluffy and more cake-like, you really need some wheat flour. This is where we're going to take a brief detour, because I imagine a lot of you are wondering how recipes and traditions made their way from Egypt all the way to Germany just because of the Roman legion. To illustrate this, we're going to tell the story of Saint Maurice. Saint Maurice, or Mauritius as he was probably known to his Roman contemporaries, was born in Luxor, Egypt, and joined the Roman legions. He eventually made his way up to commander of his entire legion, the famed Legion of Thebes. Even though this legion was recruited and trained out of southern Egypt, the Emperor Maximilian ordered them to the region of Swiss Alpine Gaul. By this time, which is roughly 250 AD, Christianity was legal in the Roman Empire. But when the Theban legion was ordered to cross the Alps, Emperor Maximilian ordered them to make a sacrifice to the Roman gods. And they refused to do it. While there wasn't any punishment for this, it didn't exactly put them in Emperor Maximilian's good graces. Their next order has to do with the entire reason they were in Swiss Alpine Gaul at the time, and that was to put down an uprising. Only Mauritius found out that some of the members of the uprising in Gaul were Christians. So again, when Emperor Maximilian ordered them to slaughter everybody, the Theban legion refused. Such open defiance two times in a row could not stand, so the emperor ordered that the legion be decimated. Today we think of decimation as a synonym for completely destroyed, but in ancient Rome, decimation had a very specific definition. The soldiers were broken up into groups of ten, and they had to draw straws. The person who drew the short straw would be executed by his nine companions. Only it wasn't a clean execution. No. Those nine people were given wooden clubs, and they had to beat to death their former comrade. You can probably guess where this is going. When Emperor Maximilian ordered that Mauritius decimate his own legion, 
The answer was simple. No. The emperor gave them one last chance. He ordered them, for a second time, decimate the legion. And again, Mauritius was defiant. No. There was no third request. Emperor Maximilian sent his own legion to Swiss Alpine Gaul. Instead of suppressing a Gallic rebellion, they beheaded the entire Theban legion. A man who was once a Roman general from southern Egypt is now a venerated saint in Switzerland. This whole story is used in the book to illustrate the fact that Rome did in fact send Egyptian soldiers, not just one or two, an entire legion, into the area that would eventually become Germania. And if every army marches on its stomach, that means they would have taken camp followers with them. And that includes bakers. Now, it doesn't make sense for Rome to import all of its grain. No, they would take seed with them, and wherever the legion went, they would till and harvest fields. And then, this practice would continue even after the Roman legion had left. So now we're starting to gather together all the little pieces that make up these little cakes. We have the culture and practice and the base material, wheat. The countries that made up the region of Germania also had one thing in spades, and that was honey. We also know that they had yeast because they were prolific brewers. On top of that, they were also some of the first to use a leavening agent. Only in this case, it wasn't baking soda or baking powder. They made something called Hart's Horn Salt. Originally, this was made by cooking down deer antler and then grinding it into a fine powder. This ingredient is still available today, although it is entirely synthetic, and is commonly known as baker's ammonia. So now we have all the basic ingredients in one place, but we're missing one thing, and that is the quintessential flavor of gingerbread. For that, we need to jump forward in time a few hundred more years to the era of the Spice Road. This may come as a surprise to a lot of you, but until recently, gingerbread cookies didn't have any ginger in them. It's honestly kind of difficult to say why they're called gingerbread in the first place. There's a good chance that it was named that because the spice blend emulates the flavor of ginger. Not only that, but this quintessential Christmas cookie wasn't specifically for Christmas, and it wasn't even Christian. The blend of spices that we associate with Christmas cookies today were most likely a mixture created by Jewish immigrants into Germany. Well, what we know of Germany today. It was at the time the Holy Roman Empire. During the Middle Ages, the Jews were relegated to a section of the city, usually known as the Jewish Quarter. Now, they weren't allowed to do business with those who lived outside the Jewish quarter. This means that most of the baking and most of the recipes stayed within their group. Those who lived outside of the Jewish quarter were strictly regulated by the Baker's Guild. Today, we think of guilds sort of like a trade union. But it's a little bit more than that. Imagine having a trade union, 
run by an organized crime boss. These unique guilds had trade secrets, and if you betrayed this, you weren't given a second chance. You just disappeared. And one of the biggest trade secrets that was kept by the Baker's Guild were the spice mixtures used for these various cookies. Now, it's hard to say how they got this spice mixture recipe from the Jewish bakers, but once it was released into the Christian population, it was wildly popular. Even today, there are places in Germany where the exact spice mixture used in their cookies is a trade secret. Because modern people are a little bit more familiar with spice flavors, it has been determined that most of these mixtures contain cinnamon, nutmeg, cardamom, cloves, but there's also something missing. There is a missing, hidden fifth ingredient. The fun part of all of this is that that missing ingredient has caused a lot of experimentation, which means we have a lot of new flavor combinations and flavor pairings. So it's allowed the flavor of these cookies to evolve and change over time. So now we have all the basic ingredients and the flavor palette mixed together. But we're still missing one thing between historic gingerbread and modern day gingerbread. Can you guess what it is? That's right. Refined sugar. By the time we get to the late Middle Ages and the early Renaissance, there were plenty of places in the world producing sweeteners. We already talked about honey, that's a pretty common one. But also by this time, people have been refining sugar beets. Now this is decent, and it works for certain recipes. But to really get that light, fluffy flavor that we get from modern cookies, you need sugar that comes from sugarcane. Sugarcane was first found on Papua New Guinea, just off the northern coast of Australia. Eventually, it made its way to the Philippines, then to China, and then to India. And that's where things really changed. Around 400 BC, the farmers in India started to gather the sap from sugarcane and then refine it into the crystallized confection that we know today. Here's the neat part, though. Refined white sugar didn't just change what was in the cookie, it changed what went on the cookies. With sugarcane-based sugars, you can start to get hard candy glazes and icing. Icing is what really allows us to step our gingerbread men up to the next level. Instead of cakes that are simply baked into the shape of a generic person, now you can use the icing to decorate them to look like specific people. In fact, that's exactly what Queen Elizabeth I did in the mid-16th century. There are reports that she had individualized gingerbread cookies made for each guest who attended her dinner parties. People would sit down at the table and find a cookie-based doppelganger of themselves staring up at them from their plates. As with most things, once you're able to construct an object to represent a person, that's where magic starts to happen. While Queen Elizabeth was using cookies as a novelty for her dinner parties, the peasantry were using gingerbread cookies 
for their spells. This is something called sympathetic magic. And if we're being honest, there were probably some guests of Queen Elizabeth's who were a little concerned about this themselves. Despite what you may think, these rituals didn't get too elaborate. The most basic level one is simply for girls who were unwed to eat a gingerbread cookie, or a gingerbread man, in order to acquire a husband. If there were a specific man that she wanted to marry, she would have to either bake or acquire a gingerbread cookie, and then feed that cookie to said man. Although, if some guy is allowing you to hand-feed a cookie to him, chances are your odds were already pretty good. The final example of sympathetic magic being used with gingerbread cookies were women who were trying to get pregnant. If they were having a hard time conceiving, they would make cookies in the shape of rabbits and then consume them. Like I said, there's not a lot of effort in these spells besides the actual baking. Although, if you think about it, you're mixing specialized ingredients into a cauldron, shaping it into human or animal effigies, baking it solid in an oven, and then finally consuming it, yeah, it kind of sounds like witchcraft. Especially if the purpose of said item is something other than nourishment. Now there's a couple other transitions that happened between the age of exploration and today, but I'm going to leave those for you to discover yourself. As you've just heard, something as simple as the history of a Christmas cookie isn't as straightforward as you once thought. A lot of elements had to come together in unique ways just to get us where we are today. And even then, things have changed quite a bit over time. What I personally find fascinating is that you can take a look at a recipe from a certain era and see what their palate was, what their luxury foods were, and what were their personal preferences. Believe it or not, what I've covered here today is just a small portion of what's contained in this book. Much like the old magic of Christmas, this book contains recipes, crafts, folk tales, and history. Only what I find unique is that it's basically the opposite of what you'll find in the old magic of Christmas. You find more recipes than you do crafts. You find more history than you do folk tales. In fact, Radish even mentions in her introduction that she was trying to avoid the trope of finding non-Christian origins for modern Christian traditions. And let's face it, even the stuff in this book, that's pretty much what it was. But Radish didn't go out of her way to point it out. In a very conversational manner, she simply tells a story. A story that spans pretty much the entirety of human history. A story based around something as simple as a cookie. If you want your own copy of The Secret History of Christmas Baking, I'll post a link to it in the show notes. For now, that's all I've got. Archive members, stick around. We're going to have a conversation about the weirdness that happened in the Victorian age. Some of it involving cookies. For the rest of you, until next time, remember, stay weird.
it's time once again to open the Esoteric Archive. The Victorian era was just weird. It's that strange transitory time between science and religion. People were experimenting with new chemicals and new beliefs and new scientific processes. Hi, Techie Joe here. I work with Ace and Knight, some of the best psychics in West Virginia, to create amazing live streams and podcasts for the Psychic Coffee Shop Network. Together, we brew up great content discussing news, events, hot topics, and more, all from a psychic perspective. On the Psychic Coffee Shop, we interview amazing authors in the metaphysical realm. Coffee and Tea combines Asen with Tracy, Dottie, Natalie, or Lady Gwendolyn for the good and the bad of being a psychic. Shameless self-promotion with Dottie the Psychic talks to leading and emerging YouTubers and business owners in our community. Mountain Bears brings you the latest in LGBT news and politics. The Psychic That Plans answers the question of, well, how a psychic plans. Plus, we're live on air. We take your comments and your questions, including psychic advice questions. Check out our amazing programming, book an appointment with top psychics, and find out all the wonderful things we have to offer at PCSBnetwork.com today.